Jesus' disciples asked him an interesting question that we find in Luke 11 and verse 1. Luke 11 and verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. We just heard a song about, If my people will pray. We're going to be talking about prayer today. Two things we notice here, that John taught his disciples to pray. It wasn't that they, uh, they didn't altogether know how to do it. So he taught them. There was something that they were missing. And Jesus' disciples also uh, were asking him to teach them to pray. So <clears throat> let's turn over to Matthew chapter 6 because we know that the model prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And when we think of being taught to pray, why do we need to be taught to pray? Isn't prayer fairly obvious? Isn't it sort of something that comes natural, that comes natural? It would seem to be so at the outset. But look at what Christ said in verse, verse 5. He gave some instruction on how to pray. So apparently it's not quite so obvious. He said, when you pray, verse 5, Matthew chapter 6, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you've shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So one of the things we find is is how to pray. It's not a show. It's not put on. It's not a performance. It's talking to our Father. And that's one of the first things that Christ said. Then he also said, verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And then he said, In this manner, therefore pray. Now, isn't it interesting that so many people who identify themselves as Christians in this world, do exactly the opposite of what Christ just said with the what they call the Lord's Prayer. They repeat the Lord's Prayer as a repetitive thing when Christ just a couple of verses before said, don't do that. Don't do that. It's an outline. It's a guideline. It's a topical uh, a list of concepts to pray about. And he, he explained that. We do need to be taught to pray. It doesn't come naturally. You know, we think about that in our families. Uh, we think about teaching our children to, pl- to pray, to play as well, but to pray. Um, I remember as a, as a young, young boy, uh, when we were very small, my parents would... Uh, at bedtime, we would all line up, pray on our knees uh, <clears throat> along the bedside of my parents' bed. And my 
father and mother and my eldest sister and then my eldest brother and then my other brother and my other sister and then me. And we'd start at the oldest and go down the list. And, you know, they took all the good stuff. By the time it got to me, there was about nothing left. But I remember praying, uh, thank you, God, for my family. Thank you for my BB gun. Thank you for my Lego building blocks. You know, all the important things to a a four-year-old or five or six or whatever it was. But the point is that we, we do need to teach our children to pray. And if you have children at home, are you modeling how to pray at, at dinner time, you know, at bedtime? It's very important. That's how they learn, and that's how then later on they are not embarrassed when perhaps as boys they grow into men, they are praying at spokesman club or they're praying for over a, a meal in, in, a, in a group. Or they're even praying at, at church, like we, we do today. And in, as women, as girls that grow up as women, they teach their children to pray. And they're not embarrassed about that. That's very important. So the bottom line is the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. What did he say? He answered them by saying, when you pray, here's how you do it. So let's talk about that a little bit. Today in the sermon, we'll go through some of the instructions he gave when he talked about teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. We'll go through the model prayer. It's really a better way to describe this in Matthew 6 and verse 9 through 13. Not the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And uh, let's look at it. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, he said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. What do we notice first? The very first thing, the focus is on God. This is profoundly important. All too often, our prayers can devolve into a sort of a laundry list, can't they? Sort of going through the drive through And sort of, you know, I'll take uh, some deliverance, some protection, like we heard in the sermonette this morning. Uh, some healings, uh, maybe some financial blessings, uh, throw in an order of uh, love and joy and peace, and uh, yeah, maybe extend that to the whole world. Amen. You know, is that, I know that's a little extreme, but is it not true that sometimes our prayers can become laundry lists? That we check off one by one. We don't do it that bad, but I, we can sometimes get into that, and the focus should be on God. The focus should be on who He is and where He is. He's our Father. He's in heaven. He's not here, is He? We're here, but He's not here. He's in heaven, the third heaven, the throne of the entire universe of what's created, what's what's seen, what's unseen. What's spirit and what's material. He's at the controls of everything. And that's how Christ said to start off. Not only that, he's, he's our Father, but He's not just my Father. He's not just your Father. He's our Father. Mr. Smith was bringing that out recently in talking about how, you know, our relationship with God is very personal 
It's very individual, but we cannot separate it from the fact that the context that we are a part of a body. And, you know, there are people these days, some people who used to be a part of the church of God, who now are ashamed or embarrassed to be a part of what they call a corporate church or a, 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 you know, a, a group of people who are together because they think somehow that takes away their individuality. You know, if, if we see our relationship to God only in our individual relationship and not as a part of a group, we're totally missing the point. We have to be a part of the body. And that's what one of the things that Christ said right out from the gate here. Our Father in heaven, we're in this together. We need one another. We can't go it alone. Nobody can go it alone. We need to be a part of the body. Let's turn over to uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse, verse 9. We see a little bit, a little glimpse of, of our Father. <clears throat> there, there are other places we could go. But this is one uh, little bit of a glimpse of, of a vision of where he is and his throne and what he's doing. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated, the Father. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the book's we're open. A picture of the Father. If you do a little math, that is, I think, about a hundred million beings that were, that are, in, before the throne of the Father. Can you imagine a hundred million angels, a hundred million spirit beings who are before the throne, the magnificence? We, we read in Revelation about the rainbow, the sea of glass, the 24 elders. This is an incredible place to, to have a glimpse of. And that's where our Father is. That's where He reigns. That's where He sits. When we pray to Him, that's who we're going before. Again, there are other scriptures we could go to, but for lack of time, we won't... Uh, touch on all of them, but let's look over at John chapter 17 and verse 1. John chapter 17 and verse 1, again, talking about the Father, our Father, that we pray to, that we talk to every time we pray. John 17 and verse, uh, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. And, and we know that He was soon going to die. He was then going to be resurrected and, and return to the right hand of the Father. To that spot where we pray to. Where we look to when we're praying. Where He sits, the Father and the Son who is at His right hand. He was soon going to... Return there. 
as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. God is powerful. God is alive. God is living. He is deserving of honor. He is deserving of praise. You know, I think that that word praise has unfortunately sort of lost its meaning in today's world. Uh, Many mainstream Christians today get into praise and worship and a lot of emotionalism and a lot of fluff, and that's the, the content of their worship. But, you know, that word still is applicable for us. And maybe sometimes we need a little bit more praise in our prayers. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, every time we talk to one another, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in our private prayers to our Father, how much do we spend time thinking about and meditating about just where He is and the power that He has and what He is doing and visualizing that. You know, and this is also not an exercise of just going through a lot of adjectives. You know, we, we just sort of list off a lot of adjectives and we check off one after another as if we're as if he can be flattered. That's not praise. And maybe that's another reason why we sometimes maybe we, we don't praise him enough because it feels like flattery. I'm talking about thanking him for who he is and the power he has. And acknowledging and visualizing Him and and soaking our minds with that when we're praying. You know, speaking of praise and parents, uh, young people, maybe if you haven't praised your parents in a while, your father or your mother, I'll give you an assignment. Today, before the day is done, take some time to go up to your father or mother And say thank you. And don't just say, you're great, Dad. You know, you're great, Mom. But tell them why. Be specific. What is it about them that you appreciate? Isn't it true that when we get a compliment, we we always appreciate it more when there's sort of an explanation of what exactly we did or what exactly it is that they appreciate about us? Not just sort of a generalization. You're great. That's awesome. Well, why is it awesome? Young people, that's an assignment for you at the end of the day. If you haven't praised your parents in a while, and, and don't you know, hook something onto it that you want. You know, leave that for another time. Just, just praise them. Just, just thank them. Just appreciate them and, and vocalize it, whatever it may be. You know, when we're talking to our father, we're, we're doing the same thing. Just like a, a, a son or daughter talking to their physical father or mother, the, it would be weird for them just to list a bunch of active adjectives as if they're talking in the third person and as if they're trying to flatter their parent. 
The same thing is with our Father. When we praise Him, we, we need to think and we need to make it specific. We need to beat the incense fine. We need to tell Him why we appreciate the power that He has and how much that comforts us. We heard in the sermonette about protection, how important it is that the God we serve is powerful. You know, God doesn't need our praise. He, he's not low in self-esteem, you know, or low in confidence. But we need to praise Him. Because it helps us to get our focus on Him. David did this a lot. <clears throat> and there are a lot of scriptures we could, we could turn to, but we, for lack of time, we uh, may not. We'll just have to pick out the best ones. Uh, Psalm 86. <clears throat> Psalm 86 and verse 6. You might find some others that you would feel are the best ones, but I'll, I'll just see if we can, we can find one or two. Psalm 86 and verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. Now, I know somebody is going to say, oh, wait, hold on a second. You know, the God of the Old Testament was the Word so who became Jesus Christ, and that's probably referring to Him. The eternal, the Lord, I understand that, um, but Jesus Christ was God too. And he does sit by the throne of the Father at the right hand. And they both have the same attributes. They both have the same power. The Father certainly is, is, is supreme. But uh, we, when we talk about praising God, certainly this can then it can apply to both of them. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I'll call upon you and you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you've made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. There will come a day when every nation, every person of every nation, on earth will praise God and will look to the Father and will pray the way Christ is teaching us to pray. That's what he said. All nations shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or or focus my heart, or, or uh, let it be, give me singleness of heart, the margin says. Help me to be really focused on what I need to do before you. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. Again, we, we may not be totally comfortable with that word praise because of some groups that have sort of stolen that word. But we can still think about what do we need to do when we go before God? How puny and insignificant we are. David said, you know, when I consider the heavens and I think about the stars and the astral bodies, then I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? Sometimes we need to think about it. The fact that we are on this little speck of dust spinning out in space. And if you go even to the edge of our solar system, I think the Voyager 
1 and Voyager 2, which were launched in the 70s, uh, what, a few years ago. They got to the edge of the solar system and they turned and they took a picture. And you can't see the earth. And you go even further to the edge of the galaxy. And if you would look back, you can't see the earth. You go even further to the edge of the universe. You certainly can't see the earth. And yet everything here seems so big and so permanent, doesn't it? We need to get that perspective when we approach God, when we pray, especially when we start our prayer, just who God is, our Father in heaven. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, and we will uh, jump back here periodically. So you might want to keep a, a card or a piece of paper there. <clears throat> what did he say? After our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name is holy. Again, that word too has lost a lot of meaning. The word holy has a, has a negative connotation to it almost. You know, it, to sort of those who are holier than thou, those who are self-righteous, those who are self-important, better than everyone else. It almost has that sort of feel in our world today when you use the word holy. A lot of people aren't familiar with that word. It just sounds odd. It sounds like someone who's very, very filled with himself. Or, it might be, well, that's God. That's describing God who's far off and unreachable and unknowable, sort of the beatific vision. No one will ever really understand Him. That's holiness. And, you know, we'll, we'll never attain that. That's just so far beyond human, you know, experience. And yet, that's totally different than what the Bible says. What does it mean that God's name is holy? Well... God's name represents Him. God's name represents His reputation. It re represents everything about Him. It means that everything about Him is good. There's no hint. There's no shadow of sin. There's no shade of turning. There aren't 50 shades of gray, are there? There's good and bad. And God is good. There's the give way and the get way. And God lives the give way. Totally. He never sins. That's His character. And when we pray, we need to wash our minds with that thought. We need to fill our minds with how good God is. Every day, every moment, every instant... Every experience that we have. Psalm chapter 50. <clears throat> Psalm 50. Let's turn there. And we need to focus on why it's important and how much we appreciate that God is good. You realize just how, how bad the world would be if God was not good. Think about that for a moment. Ponder that for a moment. If the most powerful being in the universe was not good... A hundred percent of the time, brethren, could we even exist? Would we even have another breath? If someone like Satan the devil was at the helm of the universe, we would have been gone a long time ago because he's a destroyer. 
But God is not. Frankly, that's even a proof of God's existence. The fact that the whole universe is upheld. Because he, if he withdraws his power, everything falls apart, doesn't it? Even on the cellular level. But God is good, and thank God for that. When we pray, we need to meditate on that. We need to think about that. We need to talk to him about that. We need to be specific about what we appreciate about it, of him being, being good. Psalm 50, uh, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the be- perfection of beauty. God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. You know, a lot of people think today they don't even believe in God because he hasn't directly sent a thunderbolt, you know, to show them his power. Well, he's not going to keep silent forever. He says, Uh, Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Then he talks about the offerings, about the burnt offerings and that are continually brought before him. And he says, you know, um, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the whole world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You know, do I need, in that sense, the offerings that that they were bringing at that time. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes? You know, if you're not really sincere, he's saying, you have no right to even, even vocalize my great laws the way of life, the values that I stand for. He says, verse 16, uh, verse 17, Seeing you hate instruction, cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongues frame deceit. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Verse 21, these things you've done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. Isn't that true? That human beings think essentially that God is like them. That we sort of project our ways on him. And we sort of think that what we would do He would do. And he's saying, look, you have no idea. If you're just acting out of normal human carnal nature, you have no idea how I am or what I stand for. I am not like you, human carnal beings. Now, of course, we have the opportunity to be different. But as we pray, brethren, are we thanking God that he is not like human beings? That he's different? He's not of this world. The sin in this world is not his fault. He has a different way. He's allowed it to happen for a purpose to accomplish his his plan. 
But we are even alive because of his care and his love and his goodness. Notice in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You know, I wanted to specifically mention this to to our young people, to our teens or our children. If, if Whatever age you are. Even if you're on the floor and you're listening to me right now and you can understand the words that I'm saying, I'm talking to you. You know, just because you're not baptized, just because you're not an adult, just because you're not as old as your your really, really old parents, doesn't mean you can't cry out to God too. And doesn't mean you can't ask Him to forgive you for the times you do things that are bad, times you have wrong thoughts. And you can ask Him to help you to have different thoughts. Notice verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. Even as a young person, you can take that and you can ask God, Please help me to have your thoughts and not my thoughts. I don't like my thoughts. They get me into trouble. They take me down bad paths. And I don't want them anymore. You can acknowledge your Father who sits at the throne of heaven and wants to be involved in your life. He says, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So as we start off our prayer, we have to get our minds in a different gear. We have to say, Father, you're, you're there. I know you're there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for inviting me into your presence. What an awesome privilege. Thank you for being good, for being fair, for being just, and yet merciful too, because that's super important for us. Thank you that I can rely on you. You've never let me down. Yes, you allow me to go through trials. Yes, sometimes I've been in pain, but you've never let me down. I want to be like you. I want to think like you. I want to act and react like you. Again, the point is this is, this is personal prayer. And as we, as we pray to God, we don't have to do it exactly the same words every time. That's what Christ said. Don't just repeat the same words. And we don't have to go line by line every time. There are times when we may just have time for a shorter prayer. That's, that makes sense. That's obvious. But it, doesn't it make sense also that to really get our minds into where it should be, we've got to start with where God is and who He is. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> we will get to our problems and our worries in a little bit later. Don't, don't worry. Uh, but we're just setting the stage. We're getting the context. 
We're filling our minds with God and His thoughts and His ways. And that actually is going to help us when we later on talk about our problems and our worries and our stresses in the prayer. Matthew chapter 6, and going to the next one here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to uh, combine those three lines for the sake of this point, number three. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, does every prayer need to recite each line? Uh, Not necessarily, but it's the outline, it's the concepts, it's the themes that he wants us to hit, by and large. And most of the time, it should be the pattern that we we cover. We're still focused on God. We're still focused on now his kingdom and his will. Uh, You know, in in Ezekiel chapter 9, we won't turn there, but it talks about sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. We need to understand, we need to think about the evils that are going on. But brethren, God wants us to focus on the solution, not just on the problem. And isn't it true sometimes as we're praying, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our minds go to what? To all the bad stuff that's happening in the world. To all the horrible things that are happening, and there are so many horrible things happening. And we get into a negative spiral, and we're not thinking about the solution. We're not thinking about God is, the whole point of that step was, His kingdom is coming. His will is going to be done on earth. You know, that's what's wrong with a lot of, a lot of TV and a lot of movies, um, even reality shows, you know, real-life police dramas where they talk about, you know, somebody was murdered 37 years ago or abducted or, and, and they, they found a, a skull in the, in the woods. And all the DNA, they, they are able to figure out who, who, who did it 30 years later. And they spend a whole hour talking about this, and it's fascinating, it's, you know, interesting, but think about it. You know, what was the whole context? It's about a grisly murder. It's about a brutal killing. It's about horrible things that are happening. And so much of our media, so much of our day-to-day intake is filled with that stuff. Isn't there a little bit of time in our prayer when we need to think, okay, I, I understand how bad the world is, but I'm going to meditate, Father, on what you're going to do about it and how you're going to come. Your, your son's going to come. You're going to send him. And you're going to fix it. And you've got a plan. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of that plan. And please open more doors so we can get the work done. So we can reach more people. You know, we have, we have reached millions of people with the different uh, avenues that we have over a period of decades, even in this latest time of the, of the work of God. A lot of people have been touched, but we need to meet, reach more. And what a privilege it is 
that we are a part of it. And as we talk about your kingdom come, your will be done, that's the time to ask God to open more doors. Help us. We're trying to get the message out. Please give us wisdom and power and courage and strength and resources. Help us to use new technologies and new avenues and new strategies. He's going to get the message out. He has a plan. That's what it says. That's what he's talking about. And we just have the privilege to be a part of it. We wash our minds with that. The point is not to be and and allow ourselves to sort of get depressed about the world when we're praying and when we're trying to get focused on God. Let's turn about over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45. Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? And that's what we're doing in this work. That's what we're doing in God's work. We're giving food. We're feeding millions of people cumulatively. When we think about everyone who's been touched by coworker letters or magazines or the telecast or the whiteboards or YouTube videos or viewpoint or every other avenue that God gives us. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. What a tremendous part of our prayer and a tremendous opportunity to be praying about that. Not just all the negative stuff that's happening in the world, but that God is powerful, he's good, and he has a plan. And we're a part of that. But if that evil servant, verse 48, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to eat, beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of. Now, I don't think we we outright say those things. I don't think we, we mean it. But is it not true that sometimes if we allow ourselves to slip back, we might start to think, you know, how long is this going to go? My Lord delays His coming. We've been thinking about this. We've been hearing about this for a long time. And I'm, I'm getting sort of weary. And we can sort of lose focus. And it can affect how we treat one another. and affect how, how, we, how we act and the things we do. As opposed to seeing what he's doing in the plan and how he's going to bring his kingdom here. And it's going to happen. It is the train coming down the track. And nobody's going to stop it. And that's reality. And that's the point. As we pray, we, we, we refresh our minds with the reality of God. Because this world is filled with so many unrealities. And so many deceptions that can get us off focus. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel chapter 7. We were here a little while ago talking about the Father on the throne. And then it says in verse verse 13, I was watching in the night visions. 
Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. This you know, seems to be when Christ is going to be declared as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one that shall not be destroyed. But look at verse 18, down, dropping down. And the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. What's going to last? Our involvement in God's plan of bringing His kingdom here and that spreading ultimately we know from from there to the whole universe. God is in charge. He's preparing a kingdom, and we're we're involved in that. It's coming. It's real. We anticipate it. We need to talk to God about it. That's the point. Again, I'm not talking about um, you know a lot of hype, a lot of cheerleading. I'm not talking about gushing to one another, you know, about how how how, how spiritual we are. I'm talking about in our prayer, what did Christ say when his disciples said, teach us to pray? He said, focus on the kingdom and his will, the Father's will being done. Let's turn over to Psalm 131 and verse 1. We're going to Psalms a lot. You probably have noticed the Psalms are so great when you when you think about uh, trying to meditate on God and what He's doing and who He is. David was so focused on that, and there's a really interesting Psalm here, very short but <clears throat> I think fitting. Verse one. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound or too difficult for me. You know, sometimes we wrestle with difficult issues. Sometimes we have perplexing problems in our life, or even we're, we're thinking about, okay, God's kingdom is coming, yeah, but... Yeah, what are all the things that are going to have to happen before that? Am I going to make it? How? What am I going to do at each step? And David was saying, you know, sometimes there are things that are too difficult for me even to think about. But then he says, verse 2, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. You know, our prayers should have this effect. When we pray to the Father, the end result should be that we get up and we're closer to Him, we're more at peace, we feel more tranquility, and if it's not happening, there's something wrong. That's the point. If it's not happening, maybe we're skipping down to the bottom half of the the model prayer and we're not focusing enough on the first half of where God is, who He is, what He stands for, and what He's doing. Our prayers 
should have this effect of calming us like a weaned child, he says. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, and now let's talk about our problems. Now it's time. Now the stage is set. The context is all there. We've already established that God is absolutely in control of everything, and nothing gets beyond Him. Nothing gets out of His hand. Now we're ready to talk about our needs and our, even our wants. Matthew chapter 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Luke says day by day our bread. So let's talk about that. Again, you know, if you look at it in your Bible, probably about 50%, the last five lines that we talked about, all focus on the Father, it's about 50% of the total word count of this model prayer. Think about our prayers. Do we spend 50% of our prayers focused on talking to God and thanking God and praising God? Or do we skip right to the laundry list? The purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to get our mind on God's will. Let's turn over to uh, Psalm 111 and verse 2. Because God is very concerned about our needs and about our daily bread. And he says he will deliver us. He says he will take care of us. He says he will respond to us. Notice in Psalm 111 and verse Verse 2, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious. Again, we've been talking about that's the context of everything that we've said so far. His righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given, verse 5, food to those who fear him. Look at the context of what we just read. He's given food to those who fear him. It's right in the middle of a lot of other thoughts that David or whoever wrote this psalm was thinking about the greatness of God. And in that context, they mention he gives food to those who fear him. Brethren, is that the way we bring up our needs? He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Does God care about our needs? Has he kept us all fed? I think so. You know, most of us haven't missed a meal for a while. I'm not, by the way, imputing anything, you know, making any implications here. I haven't missed a meal in a while, except when I do it intentionally. What a blessing that is. 
But the only time we do it because we're fasting, God provides our needs. And He's made a covenant with us at baptism that He will never leave us or forsake us. Yes, He'll allow us to be tried. Yes, He'll allow us to be tested. But He's made a covenant, and we've made a covenant with Him, and we're preparing to recommit to that covenant. Isn't it amazing that there are really only two kinds of people in this world? Those who are members and those who are prospective members. That includes everybody, doesn't it? Those who are a part of the body and those who are going to have an opportunity to be a part of the body. And that enter that covenant that we're going to recommit our, our commitment to at Passover here not too long away. Let's turn it back to Genesis chapter 22. When we think about our daily needs, I think here's a... <clears throat> Here's a passage that is instructive. Genesis chapter 22 and verse verse 13. This is after Abraham had been willing to offer Isaac. He was not required to. And notice verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. He named that place that name. Isn't it interesting that Mount Moriah is also the place where Jesus was later crucified. This was where Jerusalem was. The Lord will provide. Isn't that profound meaning? A foreshadowing of what Christ would do. The Lord will provide for salvation for the whole world. But let's also think about this story for a moment, that God had provided a lamb, a ram for this offering. But was this an easy path? What happened leading up to this experience for Abraham? You know, sometimes we can fall into two different ditches when we, when we think about our daily needs. We either get so blasé and lackadaisical, so ho-hum, we know that God's going to take care of us, He always has, and we take it for granted. Or we can be nervous, we can wonder, you know, what if He doesn't take care of me? What if the bills pile up? What if I lose my job? But I think this story is instructive on both counts. We can read verse 13 and think, well, this was easy. You know, the Lord providing is, is super easy. But the story says otherwise, doesn't it? Abraham and Isaac were taken to the edge. They were taken right to the precipice of him sacrificing his own son. And then God provided... Brethren, sometimes does that happen to us? Where God provides, but He sometimes allows us to be tested and tested and tested until He steps in. It's not easy. 
the lesson is he will provide for us, but he's allowing us to learn things and he wants us to understand to never take it for granted. To never just read these words in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread and run on to the next thing. But rather remember who we're talking to. We're talking to the Father who has all resources at His disposal and He's the one who will provide our needs. He doesn't want us to fret and worry. And He doesn't want us to take it for granted either. Psalm 78 in verse 56. Psalm 78. Psalm 78 and verse 56. This is the story of Israel, of their relationship with God. And what happened, it says in verse 56, they tested, they provoked the Most High God. They did this constantly. They did it repeatedly. We know the story. We'll probably be reviewing that in our either our personal Bible study or in services as we come up to the spring holy days. Uh, let's work backwards a little bit. Verse 40, verse 40 of Psalm 78. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Do we ever limit God in our expectation of how he's going to take care of us? Do we limit the Holy One of Israel? That was something that God was not pleased with with the Israelites. Backing up even further. Verse 36, Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue and their heart was not, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Our, is our heart steadfast? In other words, we are, we're confident that God's going to do what he says, what he said he would do. Yes, he may take us right up to the edge like he did Abraham with Isaac. And as we heard, even if we give our life, there is a future yet beyond that. But do we trust him? Is our heart steadfast with him? Backing up even further. In verse 19, Psalm 78. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And that's the point of this psalm I wanted to bring to. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Do we ever, by our actions, do we ever worry and fret about our finances, about our daily bread, about our needs? And we pray about it, and it doesn't help. We pray about it, and we're just as worried as when we started. We pray about it and they don't go away. And we can begin to wonder, can God provide a table in the wilderness? Because it doesn't seem to be happening for us the way it might be happening for others that we see around us. Brethren, that's why it's so important that we start off with who God is and where He is and His character. Because as we go along in the model prayer, that really helps us to have the right context in asking for 
our needs. <clears throat> One more scripture in this regard. Haggai chapter 2 and verse, verse 6. Haggai chapter 2. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I had an advantage. I knew that we were going to turn there, so I have it. <clears throat> Almost to the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. You know, sometimes we face trials like financial difficulties. Maybe some of you are facing financial trials right now. Maybe lack of a job or a low-paying job or unexpected expenses or, you know, the bills piling up. And if you get discouraged because of seemingly endless trials like, like that, keep your perspective. You know, if it's money, when you pray for your daily bread, remember God. Remember who He is because money is not a problem for Him, is it? We just read it. He said, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. Our Father has it all. We don't have to worry about Him providing for us. Now, will He take us to the edge? Sometimes. Will He test our patience? Will He allow our patience to be tested? Sometimes. But He also says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. David said that. That's our inheritance. We're going to inherit what our Father has. And He already says He has all the gold and all the silver. He will provide. There are difficult lessons to learn along the way. And certainly we, we need to look for lessons in whatever trial we have. We need to think about, you know, am I doing something wrong? But if we're not doing something explicitly wrong, we need to still look for what is God trying to teach me? Because he has all the silver and he has all the gold and he'll provide. And I know he'll take care of me. Maybe we're asking for other things that we need God to provide. Maybe you're in school helping you ask God to help you get through school or have a difficult assignment. Maybe help in providing for you a friend. Maybe uh, getting along with friends you already have or siblings. Maybe help in finding a mate or having children. You know, Whatever our needs are, the context is who God is where he is, what he's like, and his plan. Once we have that context, we can more greatly understand how to even ask for our needs. Going back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our 
debtors. This is another one that is focused on us, but not only us. It's, it's us with strings attached, isn't it? It's us with forgiving others. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That means if, if we really haven't forgiven others, we can't ask forgiveness of God. It's a, it's a deep soul search. In that sense, we examine ourselves not just at the Passover, but every time we pray, don't we? Every time we get on our knees and we ask God to forgive us of our sins, we have to examine ourselves, have I forgiven others? <clears throat> what does this mean? I think there are some areas about forgiveness that we can misunderstand. First, we don't, we don't exactly forgive the way God does. You know, God forgives sin, and then it's gone. The person is sinless when God forgives sin. We, when we forgive someone, we don't erase their sin, do we? We don't absolve them of their sin. What we do is we forgive and we let go of bitterness. We let go of resentment or we let go of anger toward them. That's our forgiveness. Why is this important? Well, maybe you've heard before, maybe you yourself have heard yourself say, well, I won't forgive them unless or until they apologize or repent. I won't forgive them until they repent. But, but we are not God they don't have to repent to us. And we don't have the power to forgive their sin in the ultimate sense. So we don't wait for them to repent. We have an obligation to let bitterness or resentment or anger go without regard to the other person's actions. <clears throat> God's forgiveness is for the sinner. It releases them of the penalty but our forgiveness is, if, is to reconcile, if possible, as much as depends on us. We are to be at peace with all men. But at the very least, to let go of bitterness. You know, we've heard stories of people like Viktor Frankl from a concentration camp. Others, uh, like a fellow named Harold Gordon. Uh, who wrote a book. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was a client of uh, Mr. James Hart, who uh, used to be in our congregation here. He, uh, Harold Gordon wrote a book called The Last Sunrise and wrote about the experience of the Holocaust and being in the concentration camps. And his conscious decision to forgive those captors who abused him had nothing to do with them apologizing or not, didn't it? What about if a wife is beaten by a husband or continually cheated on? Does forgiveness mean she continually goes back to a man who is violently abusive? Of course not. It's appropriate for her to protect herself from future harm. But does she still have to forgive? Absolutely from the heart, letting go, not harboring resentment or anger or bitterness. 
You know, the same is, is true if somebody has been abused as a child. They may not need or want or it may not be appropriate at all for them to be around the person who abused them in certain ways, but they have to let it go. They have to forgive, not carry it around. We have to let go of any anger or bitterness. We've, we've heard about that for a number of sermons. If we don't let it go, it will destroy us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, I'll just read it, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to be taking that Passover soon. This is the time when we prepare for that. He gave what was most dear to Him, His own Son, so that we might be holy, so that we might be like Him and called by His name. Let's turn over to Psalm 103, another psalm in this regard, in thinking about forgiveness. Psalm 103, because forgiveness of sins and healing is wrapped up together as well. Psalm 103 and verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. When we go before God in prayer and ask Him to forgive us, He is merciful, He is compassionate, and we can also ask Him to heal us and to heal one another. We know how many people are suffering today from various ailments, some very, very serious ailments in, locally as well as all over the country and around, around the world. We need to be thinking about God's forgiveness and God's healing. You know, when we take the Passover, we're going to be reminded that it's the stripes that Christ took on His body, that He was beaten not just the, the blood that he shed, but he, that is for our sins. But his body was broken and torn and beaten for our sicknesses, for our healing. He suffered. And as we are asking God to forgive us and heal us, we, we, we need to ask for healing for those who are suffering as well around us. But again, it's in the context of who God is and where He is, and the power He has, and the plan He's working out, isn't it? It all makes sense if we start from the right point. If we start the way Christ said, make sure we get the priorities right, we're talking to the Father, then everything else we can feel at peace about. Because we know He's there, we know He's in control, we know He has our best interests at heart. Going on in this chapter, He says, verse 8, The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. 
As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Christ came to this earth to know what it's like to be a human being. And he's there with the Father. So when we're praying to the Father, Jesus is right next to him. And he knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And the Father and Jesus Christ are looking down and they understand our frame. And they're patient and they're merciful. And they forgive and they heal. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're getting toward the final lap here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Does God lead us into temptation? Well, James chapter 1 talks about how when we are tempted by our own lust, we are tempted by our own desire. And certainly Satan the devil uh, tempts us and attempts to get us off track. And God allows it. Maybe during this time it's also appropriate to, to read the book of Job, or at least the first couple of chapters of Job. Because we see how God interacted with uh, Satan. And <clears throat> when Job's name came up, God says, Have you seen my servant Job? This, this person who is a good example, who is righteous, who is on track. And yet God allowed Satan to provoke Job. He allowed Satan to strike Job. You know, when we're in trials, when we're in difficulties, it may be, it may be that God has said to Satan, Have you seen my servant and then your name? It may be. Just think about it. We can often assume that God is not pleased with us when we have trials. But it might be that he's just testing us and wanting to take us to the next level. And sometimes the way trials come, sometimes when they come repeatedly or they come in a, in a pattern, that is way beyond coincidence. And after a while, after it happening a few times, you think, okay, this is not normal. God, are you trying to get my attention? And we look to him. But we do it in the context of who he is, where he is, how good he is, what he stands for, and his plan. And then we can have peace when we go to him and ask him, please do not lead me, do not not allow me to be tempted beyond which I am able. And help me to get through it. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. Let's turn to the last one. We're there already in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How did Jesus say to close our prayer? Just like we started. Understanding who we're talking to. Understanding the power he has. Understanding the might, 
understanding the whole universe is at His hand. And because of His compassion and His love and His faithfulness, we can trust Him implicitly, no matter what trial comes. And He will always use it that power in a way that is consistent with His character. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to talk about the church needing to put our heart into our prayers more. And he used to read from the Moffat translation of Hosea 7, verse 14, My people don't put their hearts into their prayers. You know, brethren, maybe sometimes when we don't seem to be getting the answers or we don't seem to be getting the results from our prayers, it may be that we're focusing more on ourselves than on God. It may be we're focusing more on what we want than on God's will. It may be more that we are focusing on our needs. We might be praying with ourselves and not with God. Remember the story of the Pharisee, the publican and the Pharisee? And Christ said the Pharisee, they both went up to the temple, and the Pharisee prayed thus with himself. Lord, thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor, and I'm especially not like that guy over there. But he was just praying with himself. Now, I'm not saying that we are all like that Pharisee. But brethren, can we fall into the trap? If we're not really focusing on, on God in our prayers... Can we fall into the trap of just praying with ourselves? And that's why when we get up from our knees, we don't feel any different. We don't feel at peace. We haven't lost the, we haven't lifted the burden sometimes that we're under. We serve an awesome God. And each day that we approach Him in prayer, let's Let's take the time to thank Him. Let's take the time to glorify Him and put our needs in the right context. And then we can have peace that surpasses all understanding as we read. Let's turn in conclusion to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David had... Uh, collected the offerings for building a temple. He offered this prayer to God. He was not allowed to build the temple himself. But he, he was so privileged, he was so honored, and thought it such a great privilege to just provide the materials for the temple. He was so humbled and honored that look at what he, he said to God. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Brethren, how much do we need to soak that into our brains as we approach our Father in heaven? 
the thinking that David had and meditate on it and let it soak. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you, verse 13, and praise your glorious name. Let's thank God that he has given us life, that he has given us his way, that he has given us Jesus Christ as our sacrifice for our sins, and that he has even taught us how to pray. It doesn't come as naturally as we might think. Let's ask God to continue to, to teach us how to approach him, and he will. And as we do that, we can have more and more confidence that he's there, that he's listening, that he has our best interests at heart. He's alive. He's for us. He's not against us. He'll never forsake us. He always has our best interests at heart. Let's ask our Father and Jesus Christ, teach us to pray.